Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Speaking about the Mordechai Yosef line of the Holy Ishbitzer Rebbe is... Um, any teaching of his is not easy, and um, sharing his life story is, is it in itself, as you'll see, a very challenging uh, uh, undertaking. But once you're actually getting to um, trying to synopsize him and get a sense of the man in, um, within an hour, I'm going to tell you it's impossible. But let's try to touch the impossible a little bit, and let's try to... Um, just see how he fascinates us in ways that um, I think no other, for starters, Hasidic master does, and probably no other member of our tradition was able to achieve the outer reaches of spirituality. And um, let me start by saying, be so brilliantly contemporary and so modern, and yet be so powerfully rooted, I'll use the word, in the rigidity of our teachings, in the immovability of it. And what's fascinating about him is you and I can try to do it, we get a little exposure to Western education, and we um, try to synthesize the two and, and, and have some sense. That man never touched a secular book. I made that up, but, but I think it's true. Um, you know, uh, he lived in the ghetto, he lived in the shtetl. There's no reason to believe that he had any outside influence. As you'll see throughout this learning, hopefully, the reach and that he achieved and the way he speaks to our generation is, is just mind-boggling, that he was able to almost, I'll say prophetically, be able to go out of the shtetl and open up the consciousness of the shtetl in such a way that he is so relevant and so current uh, is, is something that I think in itself shows that he's a unique personality and... Um, his, his approach was not one of, hey, I'm announcing to the world I'm a modernist or I'm, I'm a radical. He viewed himself as rooted in the depth of tradition. But by being so rooted in that depth, he was able to reach a certain openness, a certain broadness that um, I think few others, if any others, have carried to the point that he has. Now, as to why and how he was able to do that, Another talk for another time. We can't even begin to touch that. But just understand, and you'll see it yourself soon, how modern he is, how contemporary he is. But it would be an interesting analysis as to what brought him to do that from within the tradition to make him travel that journey. But that's not something that we can uh, really get into right now. But I would really start by saying that um, the model he gives us is one that's not afraid to question. The questioning it's not something that comes in any hesitant way to him. Everything is on the table, you'll soon see. And he 
I think, looked at his spirituality in a very transcendent way and looked at his message in a transcendent way. And the transcendent is beyond the question. The question and the answer are both equal partners in the transcendence in that you can't really say, oh, now I got it. When you're studying transcendence, the question is an answer. The answer is a question. It's, it's all a whole other world. And I would say that would be the tool that he used. So we're talking about the question. And um, just to sort of personalize the, the power of the question, uh, I remember as a child, my Rebbe, I went to an old world cheder in Baltimore. And um, we asked many questions also, as kids do. Kids are curious. And for those of you who speak Yiddish, my Rebbe gesagt, no one dies from a question. Okay, you got a question. I don't know the answer. And I think that really is where you'll see a lot of him going. He will offer answers, but it's all going to be on an infinite level. It's not going to be the puzzle will fit together perfectly. He will tease out tremendous depth, but it's not in the linear, rational way that you're used to it. Another early influence of mine, a rabbi in Baltimore, Rabbi Taub, used to say, you'll know the famous song, Enkelekenu. And he would say, if you and I would write that script, first comes me, Kalakenu, who's like our God? And the answer is, ain't Kalakenu, there's no one like our God. That's not the way we say it, right? We'd start with me, Kalakenu, and then question away. Okay, you have a transcendent connection to something that's beyond you, but you got a million questions, and you better have a million questions if you're connecting to God. If it's all that perfect puzzle, and you know, go to Miami Beach and lie on, on the sand there. But if you really are querying the depth of life, then you've got to have questions. So I think that's one important intro to, to getting a sense of, of him in terms of how he was open to everything, so to speak. I, will, um, I think let's just take a quick overview of his life, which is enough to already see that infinite personality. He was born in a town in Poland called Tomaszew. He was a child of privilege. He was um, very sickly. He was weak. He was actually very short. He met his great early influence, the Yitta Kurdish, um, who was like over 6'2", and a perfect football player, broad-shouldered. And he said to him, now I am much bigger than you. First time they met. But one day you will grow. Turns out he didn't grow much in physical, uh, but my God, did he grow in stature. And I think he was almost prophetically noting that this young man will grow one day in a way that will challenge his very approach. And you'll see how that really happens in, within a few minutes. So he was basically his childhood friend was a man who later turned out to be his um, greatest uh, opponent and, 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 and um, man who he challenged the most. And it was Rabbi Nachem Mendel of Kutsk. Morgenstern is his name, Holy Kutzker Rebbe. They were childhood friends in Tamashev. The Kutzker brought him to his teacher, the Pshischa, and introduced him to that whole way of, uh, of spirituality. What year was he born? I should have done that. I'm sorry. I, I, he, was, he was born in the year uh, 1800, and he only lived 54 years. But he turned up over the world in those 54 years. But thank you. Um, so the Kutzker Rebbe uh, introduces him to a whole new way of Hasidut, and his soul gravitates uh, to what he's getting. 
to the point where I told you he was a child of privilege. He sells his house, sells his, all, all his worldly possessions, and he goes to Pshischa, and he just hangs out there and studies day and night. And he's chosen the spirit over the physical, so to speak. We think. We, we'll see soon what happens. Just trying to think how to say this the right way, because this is going to be defining his whole life story. In Pshischa, he learns a very unique approach to Hasidut, which is to put the emphasis on the self and to study the depth of spirituality, the depth of any Torah study, in such a way where it empowers you, the person. Not the Rebbe. You, the person, are being empowered. And Hasidic masters were known to have empowered water carriers, the simple people. The irony of Hasidus is that the, the traditional Hasidic Rebbe is like, what can I say, is like the closest we have to royalty. Uh, they have courts. Um, in some ways, they model King David, the archetypical uh, uh, founder of, of what Jewish royalty really is supposed to be. And yet that same Hasidic Rebbe, his whole court mission is about empowering the simple water carrier and the simple poor person. So it's, there's a check on his, on his wealth, on his resources, on his royalty in, in so far that that is his mission. And the Pshischa Rebbe didn't like those kinds of Rebbe's. He said, I don't like those broad-shouldered Rebbe's who carry everyone on their shoulders. He said, I don't like those Rebbe's who um, give out blessings and empower people through just giving them a quick fix, 30-second blessing. He wanted depth. He wanted inner learning. He wanted everybody to go to the place the Rebbe goes to. He said, I wish the Cossacks would do us a favor and they'd surround every Hasidic court with 50 of their hooligans and not let anyone enter. Because that would require people to go deeper and inner. So he's, his approach is really a deviation from much of Hasidut. We'll soon see that it's really within the spirit of Hasidut. But he's very into self-spiritual empowerment. Yeah, he studies the Talmud in depth. He studies all the traditional commentaries. But while he's doing that, he's getting inner spiritual messages in terms of his own life, in terms of his own uh, uh, um, understanding of what it means to be a Jew. And eventually his master dies, the Simcha Burma Pshischa, and um, the Kutzker Rebbe is his top disciple, and the Ishbitzer follows the Kutzker to Kutzk. And he begins a dynasty there of his own. The Kutzker Rebbe takes the, takes the Pshischa's concept of self-betterment, self-improvement, going deeper to probably the greatest extremes within the Hasidic tradition. He really gets, he says, give me 36 students to study the depth of the Baal Shem Tov and let the masses go somewhere else. They're good people, but I, I'm, not, I'm not their Rebbe, so to speak. Of course, the masses came to him endlessly. Um, and the Kutzka Rebbe, as you all know, who, anybody study Kutzk, eventually secludes himself and separates himself from the, from the world, possibly for years. We don't know exactly how long it was. But um, his transcendence and higher consciousness took him to a place that did not let him even interact with his top students. The, the Ishbitzer becomes the man who deals with his students. 
He doesn't have time for that. Okay. And I'm not really doing this justice because all of these people, as you'll see in a minute, uh, um, have a, a common source that's very popular-based and that's very uh, um, empowering. But just bear with me for one second. And as the Kutzker Rebbe just gets so carried away on that trip, the Ishbitza just can't take it. And one Simcha Torah, while he's in Kutsk, he says, bring a Sefer Torah to my lodging. We're davening here. And that's the beginning of his split and his break, his departure. It's been called the Great Rebellion within Hasidut. Many have had differences, but not perhaps as pronounced as, as the way the Ishbitzer leaves the Kutzker. He's said to have said, I heard from an old Geru Chassid, my teacher, Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach, did not accept this. But again, Alan will, anybody else here speaks Yiddish? Okay, so I have to say it for Alan in Yiddish once, and then you'll help me not translate it properly. He said, Mir dafen nisha rebbe in Himmel, mir dafen a rebbe in Dred. And that's not translatable. We don't have a rabbi in heaven, we have him in the ground. But deep in the ground. And dread means like really, we need to, like buried down here, buried in the earthly. I don't need him to be in heaven. Okay, it's cool. He's, he's achieving great. He says, I have to tell you, I love the marketplace of where people are. And the Ishbitzer really has a deep, major difference with his teacher. It's not about ego. It's not about, you know, we can attribute other things. Things get in the way and always cloud things. I'm sure they're all human beings. But he has a serious, major disagreement with his teacher, and he's repelled by his teacher's ways. It's just he can't tolerate it. At a certain point, he just skips town, opens up his own court. And the irony of it is that his message is going to be very much popular, people-based, obviously. But he does not end up becoming what you call a folks Rebbe. He ends up becoming a Rebbe who has very few students. But to really understand why the Izbitzer left the Kutzker, and I would argue it's not a rebellion. I would argue it's a broadening. It's a deeper understanding of the ways of his teacher. It's enhancing it. And I would suggest that many rebellions, revolutions, really take what they got from former generations and just seek to broaden it. We look at it as a violent break. But if we can wear deeper historical eyes, we can see that revolution comes from evolution in many ways and earlier influences. And I will try to show you uh, in a very few minutes how that's a play in, in this story. So to understand why the Ishbitzer left the Kutzker, you have to understand why the founder of the Kutzker's approach to Hasidut I mentioned previously Rab Simcha Burim Rab Shischa. His Rebbe was the Yitzhak Kaddish, who um, created that approach of putting emphasis on deeper learning and, and deeper self-improvement. And he was a disciple of the great seer of Lublin, who was a folks Rebbe par excellence, even though a brilliant scholar. And the Yitzhak Kaddish of Shischa walks out on his Rebbe, <laughs> and he starts his own thing. So the Kutzker isn't the first to do this. And let's go back a little bit further. The seer of Lublin, studied by Rebbe Melech of Lijinsk. They both had studied together by the Magid of Mazrich, 
who was the one of the lead disciples of the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement. But the seer of Lublin is having issues with the way Rabbi Melech is leading his grand court. And he seemingly, it's not as striking, opens up his own court while his master is still alive and does his own thing too. So what's going on over here? They just they have no gadult, they have no patience, they want to start their, their Rebbe. One, two. There's something very deep I suggest to you is going on. What's happening, my dear friends, is the Baal Shem Tov introduced a radical new way, the founder of the Hasidic movement, of empowering the water carrier, the simpleton, of empowering the commoner, and looking down almost at the scholar, at the, at the person of resources. He looked at the simple Pushid Yid that the whole world looked down at and said, they're the holiest. And his empowerment really is an empowerment of the self. It's an empowerment of all the people that have been disempowered, dismissed because they couldn't study Torah. They had no resources. They had no, no um, uh, uh, background in, in that world. So the elitists at that time dismissed them as simple Jews and made no room for them. And Baal Shem Tov comes through with this radical interpretation of saying, the Yidala who comes to a Friday night meal and sings and dances can achieve the same high consciousness as the student that studies Torah day and night. And believe me, in those days, there were students that did it close to 24-7, as you can imagine. There was no TV distraction, no internet distraction, and none of the other distractions. They lived in the shtetl, and this was their internet, this was their electronics. They were plugged in day and night. And these poor Yidden who needed to work for a living and, and were challenged by all kinds of family tensions couldn't begin to enter into that world. The Bashemtev empowers them par excellence. But I think if you look deeper, what the Bashemtev is doing is he is empowering the individual to study Torah in a deeper way. And his early disciples, two lead ones, one is Rabbi Yaakov Yosef of Polanyo, publishes a famous book called Toldot Yaakov Yosef, the first book on Hasidic teachings, based on his master's words, largely. Uh, clearly is a great scholar. And Reber, the Magad of Mazrij, is equally a brilliant scholar. These are the two top disciples. Moshele, the water carrier, has no room at that table, you know, even though he's the Baal Shem Tov's, you know, vision, but it's these Rebbe's that create a consciousness and a, an approach in Judaism that will empower the water carrier. And the Magid busies himself with training disciples and students. He's taken over all of Eastern Europe, so to speak. He sends them far afield, Russia, Poland, even Hungary, and, and even Germany, to just create, grow Hasidus, grow this public empowerment, grow this people empowerment. And the uh, told that Yaakov Yosef, does it by publishing his first book. So the Baal Shem Tov, who's very people-minded, is his first representation is really on a very high scholarly level because his students are studying the depth of his message and, and the, uh, uh, um, his, his other student actually wrote it. So now we come to the third generation and we have Rebbe Melech of Lijinsk, the Baditchever, a whole bunch of Rebbe's who are contemporaries of each other, all disciples of the Magid. And Rebbe Melech becomes like a, a Rebbe who is, he's the Rebbe. And the seer of Lublin seems to have some issue with that. And is not feeling that there's enough emphasis on the masses there. Clearly there was connection to the masses in Rebbe Melech. 
infinite stories suggesting it and teachings, but there was still something that he felt wasn't enough of the Baal Shem Tov's way. So he goes really mass popular. While he's going mass popular, he attracts brilliant students. One of them is the Yid HaKadosh of Pshista, who just feels his Rebbe is just too out there with the people. And he says, wait a minute, uh, this is not, I, I want to go deeper. And he has his own cute little holy rebellion. Not, and I don't want to use that word, it's an expansion. And he finds a group of students to study with, and he breaks away. And from him comes his top disciple, Simchabunim, who happens to be an herbologist, a pharmacist, a businessman, very successful. And he succeeds the Yiddah Kurdish. And he is teaching Torah on a very high, almost elite-like level. The Torah is empowerment still, but it, he's teaching it. He's separating himself. He says, I don't want these, the, the, these uh, 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 Rebbe's who, who have broad shoulders and, and have people just come and sit and by them. I want a Rebbe who's going to just sit and learn Torah in the depth of it. So you're seeing that tension. The seed was there in the Baal Shem Tov's own pronouncement of that every person's got to go deeper. That includes the water carrier, and it certainly includes the great Rebbe. The rabbi of Rizhin, going off subject for a second, his mission is to bring the Baal Shem Tov's method, m message to the wealthiest of Jews. And he has a court the likes of which uh, King David might wish he'd have, you know? Uh, white horses, um, gold, I mean, you name it. And I, I could, we don't have time to go in, and it wasn't that materialistic sounding as, as it sounds. It had a much deeper spiritual message. But you're seeing the Baal Shem Tov's spreading uh, his ways to all aspects of Judaism. No class is being discriminated against, from the poorest to the wealthiest, from the illiterate to the most intellectual. It's a mass movement that really encompasses everything. So by the time we come to the Kutzker, as I said, well, the clock is moving fast. By the time we come to the Kutzker, he's taken this inner trip to a level that's just way too much. So I therefore would suggest that the Ishbitzer is not really just rebelling against his master. He is correcting, he is expanding, he is connecting to the Baal Shem Tov. He is connecting to that early vision and as I said to you, he himself will not draw thousands of Hasidim, tens of thousands. His message is all for them. He studies Talmud and Torah with his disciples almost every night from midnight and on. I'm not going to tell you what he did before midnight. Obviously, studied Torah, you know. But I'll tell you something about the Ishbitzer, where he becomes the most popular folks Rebbe, beginning to happen right now. He had to wait 200 years, 150 years. But the Ishbritzer is right now being studied by people from all far extremes. And his words were prophetic. He wrote for our generation. So the story in the Ishbritzer hasn't been closed yet. And when you see some of the things that we're going to get into studying, you will see how the Ishbritzer really is talking to us, is talking to our challenges, and was obviously way ahead of his time. But again, there is an empowerment on a higher level that the Ishbitzer is involved in, but his message is clearly not self-centered. It's, it's for the masses. It's for everyone. Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach used to say, I don't know how people were able to study Torah before the Ishbitzer came along. Because his whole approach of 
the depth of Torah study, as you'll see in a few minutes, is just totally beyond us. So I'm going to try to move a little faster, but I hope this in intro gives you a little bit of a sense of what these Torahs are really trying to do. I want to do something a little bit challenging with the second Torah. I really want to study it with you. I wouldn't say line by line, but I, I really want us to read it and analyze it and, and, and grow with it. Um, and I'll just quote two, two early sources of my own in understanding Ishbitz that way. I had the good privilege of meeting the son of the last Ishbitzer Rebbe. He, uh, that this, that uh, dynasty evolved into another town called Radzin, which is right next to Ishbitz, but it was a direct descendant. And the son of the last Radzina Rebbe was studying in the Harvard of the uh, Jewish Orthodox world, Lakewood Yeshiva. And he was um, very scholarly, obviously. And I used to go to his father's house to pick up books for Shlomo many times, and myself even. And um, his father, incidentally, called Shlomo the greatest Ishbitzer authority of our generation. And his father was the Rebbe who kept the lineage alive. And uh, um, when I asked the young son, if he's studying um, his grandpa's teachings, which is a little arrogant question to me, but I guess I just felt like asking it, so I asked it, because he's in Lakewood, which is so the antithesis of Hasidus. So he said to me something so profound, I'll never forget it, in Yiddish again. Ich kuk darain. I glance at it. I glance at it. This book was not written by the Ishbitz. It was written 20 years after his passing by his grandson, and disciples who recreated the teachings from the Ishbitzer that they heard 20 years earlier. So obviously this is very heavy content-based to the memory of his disciples, and, and it's not something that's a perfect piece of knowledge beginning to end where I'm writing it with a certain intent. It's them teasing out what they remember from their Rebbe and putting it down, you know. The Rebbe was beyond the written word. Okay, He was the true master of the oral tradition. So um, we're going to take the first, the second teaching and really take a, a deeper look at it. The first one on page one, um, should we have, I, I, instead of having someone read it out loud, I'll give you 30 seconds to just read the teaching on page one with, with number one so you'll familiarize yourself with the themes and then we'll move on to number two. Okay, I'm assuming you got the drift of it or if you didn't, you won't get much more of it. It's, it's written in ancient language. This is a midrash, a 2,000 year old midrash that the Ishbitz is going to analyze. And it's based on the opening verse um, in Lech Lecha, the third portion in Genesis, where God, for the first time, is addressing a human being who is on a spiritual journey. And that's our father, Abraham. And God uses the words to Abraham, Lech Lecha, which everybody <coughs> in this day and age, God bless you, everybody in this day and age already translates as, he's going to the promised land, as not just go thee to thy land, which is nice King James versions, I guess. But lech lecha means go into yourself. Go deep into yourself. And where are you going? To the land that I will reveal to you. Ela aretz asherareka. And this is the first spiritual divine... Abraham is not a Jew yet, but he's on his way to becoming one. But this is the first spiritual seeking journey of connecting to the divine within the Judaic tradition. And this medrash that you took a quick glance at is what the Ishbitzer Rebbe is going to analyze in how Lech Lecha gives us that message. So we're going to read um, the first paragraph in a minute of teaching two, just so that we can then study it 
I remember when I would study, so I had the great privilege, Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach did not teach text too much. He was not a text-based teacher. It was, came from his heart, from his soul. But he, um, a few times I had the privilege on airports or just running with him that we would actually study from a text. And I remember him so many times saying to me when we would study, if there was something that was very amorphous, he knew I couldn't understand it. Maybe I'll say he didn't fully grasp it either. I don't know. He would just ran through it. But then we came to a point that was simple and clear. And I thought, oh, I got this one. Now I got him. And he would stop and say in Yiddish, What's the holy Ishbitzer really saying? Remember, these are disciples writing 20 years later from their memory. Let's get to the root of what he's trying to say. So we're going to try to do a little bit of that as we look at a translation that's very good, but once you're translating the Hebrew, you're already losing a lot of the effect. And, and remember, I'll just, to give you a sense of how difficult it is to study this kind of text, the Baal Shem Tov, right, the founder of the Hasidic movement, saw a, a disciple taking copious notes while he was teaching. and said to him, he says, what, what, what are you writing? He says, Rebbe, I'm writing your words. He says, hear me. What I'm saying is one thing. What you're hearing is a second thing. What you're writing is a third thing yet. And what you'll read later will be a fourth thing yet. And you'll see in a minute how this is evident from the Ishbitzer because it all depends where you're at in the moment, how your soul is connecting to it. My friends, I have many times studied the same text in preparation for a sermon, years on end, and then boom, one year I look at it, I say, wow, how could I have missed this? This is so profound. I was somewhere else for the previous six years when I studied it than where I was in the seventh year, and now it's speaking to me in a whole other way. The Torah is alive in each and every one of us every second as we learn it. So this is classic Ishbitz rooted in the Baal Shem, as I'm telling you. So he couldn't, he, he wouldn't let his words be written down, but they had to. You know, the oral tradition, going back 2,000 years, was never meant to be written, as you know. It was one of the most radical departures of traditional Judaism. The, Rabbi Yudah Nasi was attacked viciously for that, because this is the oral tradition. It's got to be in the moment. It's got to be passed on with the same excitement and the same energy with which you heard it. The written word is going to be dry. But they saw there's no, no other way but to record it and write it. We're talking about the depth of the oral tradition here. Just as a little bit of an intro into the verse that we're analyzing from the Torah, which is repeated in both, uh, in both versions at the very top, in both no note number one and number two, God says to Abraham, and I'll translate the Hebrew and the English, Lech lecha, go deep into yourself, me'artzacha, from your land. In the Hasidus, it's evident it does not mean just your land, your country. It means get out of your land, get out of your artziot, get out of your physicality, get out of all the physical influences that inspire you. If you want to go into yourself, into who you are, what you see out there is not who you are. That's how you connect to it. How you connect to it, we'll, we'll talk about. But let's disconnect from all those outer influences. Ma'artzacha, move out of that. And better yet, umi moladetecha, I think the translation is not so good. And from your original birth, we're going back to your earliest influences. We can even, if you want to call, do this epigenetically, influences that came upon you before you even know, knew it. Influences that are genetic, influences that are formed you in the earliest periods of your lifetime that you had no idea. We're talking Freud. Okay? Get out of all that. Umibeit Avicha, of course, traditionally was the father who introduced the young man into you know, life and in, into achievement and career, 
get out of all that and go to the land that I will show you. Again, the emphasis is on the you. That's the verse that the Ishbitz is analyzing. And from the little I've told you, this verse is custom made for him. And this verse is the source of Judaism. One of the Ishbitz's disciples, Reb Tzadik Cohen, said, anytime something appears the first time in the Torah, it is the seed source teaching for all evolutions of that teaching. So here is the source of us understanding what it means to be on a Jewish journey. So we're going to take a little bit extra time. Well, hopefully the clock will cooperate. So if you want to just do a quick read of the first paragraph, and then I'll maybe analyze some of the words. Just to, It may not make sense, but just you'll familiarize yourself a drop of the lingo. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybatemidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So I'll just start with a verse. The verse from Isaiah says, when I will pour water on the thirsty and dip moisture on the dry lands, thus I will pour my spirit on thy offspring. So we're talking about a country that's arid, that's dry, not, not Arizona, but Israel, and we're talking about a country that needs the life force. And we're talking about you and I. We are spiritually dry. We need that water. We need that life force. And we need that, that outpouring of God upon us. And the Ishbitsi quotes that verse. Everything he's going to say that's ever going to be radical is going to have sources in the tradition. That's the beauty of him. He's not using Western, any, any, no Western influences, no Western quotes. It's all in the Torah. So basically, Abraham is trying to get into himself right now. He's trying to go deeper into who he is. And the first thing that Abraham realizes is that if you want to take that deeper trip, the this-worldly desires only speak to you as they remove anxieties or, or um, blockages or, or connections that your soul needs or, or your body or your heart or your, or your physicality needs a response to. He says, that is not the real purpose of life, is how we interact with physicality. Evidence, so to speak, two people can go to the very same spot and relate to the very same physical experience and have totally different reactions. One could be frightened and awed, and one could be totally indifferent to it. So it's not out there, but it's in you. That's the first thing he wants to get across to us is, yeah, you think, wow, that mountain is stunning, it, it, you know, and that, you know, and that music, and, and that, my God, all these things I'm seeing in that show. Shlomo Karlbach used to say this cute line. He said, there are two posters in front of me. One says that um, the Amshin of a Rebbe is coming to town, and one says Michael Jackson is coming to town. Michael Jackson ends up coming to a synagogue, and Shlomo predicted he would. But anyway, it's another story for another time. Um, but... Uh, uh, he said, so two people passed that sign. One is a chassid and one is a hipster, right? The chassid only sees the Amshin of Rebbe is coming to town. They're both looking at the same poster, right? And the hipster only sees Michael Jackson is coming. So it's not out there. The first thing you have to understand is in here. It's who you carry, what, what you carry. So as we're trying to sort of 
get inside, we have to almost know, negate, as he uses the language in the English translation, that outside world. And say, yeah, I'm relating to it, but the question is, it's on to me. Not self-centered egoism here, but this is really self-centered inner work. How is this talking to me? Because there has to be, he says, a body of life, a purpose in life that's far deeper than me just connecting to that physical. Because that's responding to a need of mine. And it has to be something, because if another person doesn't have that need, then obviously it wasn't meant only for me. So his, the last verse that he uses at the bottom of the first paragraph in making his point suggests that we should rejoice in God and in the glory of God. Again, the emphasis is on you. You will rejoice in the God and the holy God of Israel. You will glory. So even in connecting to the divine, Lech Lecha, you know where God is? God is in you. God is, God is that inner radical open spirit that's in you, that's open to everything, and that's not influenced by all the distractions of the world that we constantly are enacting, interacting with. And they're here for a holy reason, obviously, too, to help us cope, to help us overcome, but to ultimately strengthen our inner spirit. How do you develop muscles? You push against the trend, right? You push, it, you push against all the things that, that are stopping you and holding you back. He's giving you spiritual muscles. So to go a little bit deeper now into the second paragraph, so this Rabbi, I'll let you read it for a minute. Okay, so the first verse that he uses, or the, the first story he tells, is a traveler who is visiting, whether it's a city or a building, and sees this building or city falling apart. And this traveler is outside the culture he's observing. He's not in that culture. So this, this traveler has got to be you and I removing ourselves a little bit from our culture to look deeper into it and see what kind of lessons we can learn from it. In order to go deep, deep, deep into yourself, you need to also have the capacity to go far beyond, far beyond the physicality, far beyond anything that you're consciousing at the moment connecting to the beyond the beyond, as Shlomo would say, which is an Israelite idea. Going way <coughs> beyond you. It has to be, God bless you, deep within you and way beyond you. Way outside of the box, but powerfully brewing in your soul. So what the Ishbitzer is telling us right now is that you're looking at this city that's, or that's burning or this building that's aflame and falling apart. What's he talking about? So he mentions a little bit lower down the Tower of Babel. What he's responding to is current events of his time that he's trying to get out of. You basically know the outlines of the story of the Tower of Babel, and that is that um, people wanted to sort of fight with God, and they built this tower. But it's a little bit deeper than that. And this, what I'm sharing with you right now, is based on Ishbitzer understanding, but the verses are all in the Torah. The people of the Tower of Babel were a few hundred years after the destruction of the Great Flood and Noah. And they realized something about God, and that is God is not going to destroy this world. No matter how bad we are, he is not going to destroy this world. If he didn't do it then, and he had a perfect opportunity, he left something. But they also realized 
that God does not want us to lead a destructive life. doesn't want us to rob, cheat, steal, and do everything that the generation of the flood did. So they came up with this master plan. Let's be good people. Let's be nice to each other. Let's share commonality. Let's not fight. And we will forever be preserved. Almost sounds modern. Modern vision, we would like, right? Coming out of the chaos. And they realized that in order to create such a culture, what better place to do it than in Babylonia, where according to the Talmud in the land of Shinar in Bavel, is where all of the people that perished in the flood were buried. So this would be a living memorial not to go in their ways. They would not move or falter from that place. This is where they're going to set up their culture. Right on top of that terrible atrocity to forever remember, if you don't do this, you're going back to that. But then they had this other brilliant idea. If we're just good people, why do we need to believe in God? Let's just be good to each other and not have to carry that heavy load of, of the other. Let's just keep it simple. Let's just be good. To play it safe, they said they had an Abraham, a few good guys who would believe in God, and that would shield them because if they're acting good and there's some faith of God, no one's going to touch them. But for them, belief in God wasn't necessary. It was all about just being good. Now, let's just see how deep this is. The Ishbitzah says, that the Torah says, they spoke Safa Achat, one language. Imagine all of humanity speaking the same language. And Rashi says that it was Lashon HaKodesh, that it was whatever early version of Hebrew that was in existence then. But the Ishbitzah knows the Torah calls it Safa Achat and not Lashon Achat. Safa suggests the lip. And Lashon suggests the tongue, which is deeper within you. He said that language they spoke may have been the holy one, but it was all surface. Finished davening. You know, I, I did it. You know, I read the language. I said the Hebrew word. So he says it was lip service. Suffer really means that. Because the Torah should have said Lashon, by all accounts. He says they were, they, they were very surface-based. Okay, we can't be bad. We have to be good. Let's all talk together the same language, and let's not fight. It's a very surface, simplistic, seemingly positive way of existing. And there's no room for the great other, for the divine, because we don't need, we don't need to bother with that. But God is not playing a trick, but God is introducing the human component in his reaction to that. When God descends and he says, Okay, so they're all speaking a forced language. They're all set up in a forced location. They are all dedicated to forced values they're enforcing. Sounds like secular communism. And even the idea of a commune, we're all forced to abide by these rules. The rules are you got to be good. If you're not good, you're going back to that. So nobody can be bad. We're forcing good on everybody. Now, by now, you probably figured out that's not human. The human spirit doesn't work that way. 
you know? So God says, you're forcing a way of life on people that are not part of the human condition. So God says, let me allow you to be a little bit more human. And let's hear when you have different ways of expressing, different languages, different words, different ideas, what's going to happen. And my God, the whole Tower of Babel collapses. It's ill-equipped to deal with the uniqueness, the difference of humanity. And that's probably one of the challenges, I don't want to go into politics right now, that a beautiful Marxist communist vision has of just trying to equalize everything in some kind of, a, I know there's a historic evolution that's, through which it's supposed to happen too, but when it's forced, it's not human, it's not spirit, and it can't work. So their intention was the highest, as our intentions in our culture, as were intentions 50, 60 years ago, 100 years ago, in trying to create that ideal utopian society. But how do you deal with distinction? How do you deal? The Talmud says, no two people look alike, no two people think alike. The word ivri in Hebrew means from the other side. A Jew is always connected to that which is different. We Jews are filled with machlokas. How do we study the oral tradition? One rabbi says, one rabbi says, distinctiveness is the essence of life. And you know what? God exists in that great distinctiveness. God exists in the variety, in the disagreement. God wants that. Unlike any other king, who does a president name to his cabinet? The Yishbitzer says, doesn't use it on the president. He names like-minded people. He'll do one or two token opponents to make it look good to build a coalition for PR purposes, but basically it's people like him. God doesn't do that. God wants the uniqueness and the broadness of life to be represented by every individual as to who they really are. And what do we do in the Holy Temple where we, meet, we read our idyllic vision? And by the way, the Tower of Babel and the Holy Temple are juxtaposed as two different idyllic states. What we do there is every sinner gets to come and do offerings to fix and correct and connect. We offer 70 bullocks for all the 70 nations of the world. God's house is the house of prayer for all people. And prayer does not mean we're all saying the same thing. Prayer means we're all saying different things. My prayers are as significant as your prayers. And the temple was built by numerous countries from around the surrounding area. So it needs the distinctiveness of humanity. It's a whole other model we're talking about. So you, need, so you see, for such chaos to exist... It's got to have some transcendent source, Abraham said. Is it possible for all this chaos to exist and it not to have some kind of a higher source? Because somehow the chaos of the world is existing and we're doing pretty well amid the chaos. So, so to speak, behind the evolution of life is a certain almost divine imprint that's allowing us to evolve and, and create nuanced differences. And the Ishbitzer is saying, my God, this can't be masterless. Even though it's sinking, the ship is sinking, even though my, we're living in the craziest of times, whether people attributed to, to the current era or four years ago or six, I don't care what, we'll all say we're living in the craziest of times. That's a sign of divinity, just the opposite. When there's order, you don't notice the divine so much, he says. 
But when there's total chaos and you ask, and you invite yourself to ask, where is God? Does God exist? I tell you, the Ishbitzer is talking with, for every atheist. He's talking for every agnostic. He's talking for all eternity to say, deepen that question. Don't just make it a philosophical one. Does God exist? And prove it to me and be a contrarian. But really query in the depth of your life. How could all these differences be happening and there not being some glue that attaches them? And, and if I'm not going back to the original source and, and the Big Bang and the, whatever, we don't have time for that right now. But, but in the chaos, the Ishbisha discovers God. And that's the deepest place in which you can come. And I have much more to say, but the clock is ticking, so I'm going to move on. In the third paragraph, I won't make you read it. In the third paragraph, the Ishbitzer says, but don't just only do that. Don't, the God says to him, don't just only connect to me in moments of upheaval when people have a tendency to go more spiritual, interestingly enough. After 9-11, all the churches, all the synagogues, all the mosques reported record turnouts. Because when there's chaos, you... Okay, my, my, the rational puzzle I pieced together is not working. I'm not in control. That's what the generation of the, of the uh, uh, Tower of Babel tried to do. They tried to put it all together in a way that's going to work. But the moment you allow for distinctiveness, you have to recognize that there's a deeper transcendent reach here as well. So God is telling the Ishbitzer in the third paragraph, just synopsizing it quickly now, don't just connect to me at a bad time. Find me in the best of moments. Find me in stability. There's change going on in life every second. Sometimes you have the privilege to see it in radical ways, and sometimes you see it 100 years later. So be aware that there's change. We say in our daily prayer, God renews every day, every moment constantly the works of creation. Everything is being renewed. Sometimes you see, and sometimes you don't. I think the challenge of our generation, we Jewish people have suffered for thousands of years trying to connect to God out of deprivation, out of hunger, out of brokenness, out of destruction. We did a pretty good job, actually an excellent job. Hopefully God is giving us a new test right now. Connect to me out of total success. Connect to me out of stability. Connect to me out of normalcy. And that's what he's talking to Abraham about. And the Ishbitz is giving us that deeper understanding of what this lech lecha is, what it means to go into yourself and walk out from... I have infinite more things to say on this, but I, I, I see I only have 20 minutes. Oh, my God, 10 minutes left. Can I get 20? <laughs> okay. can, we, can we go over time? Are you guys... Okay, I, I don't want to hurt anybody's schedule, but I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I told you this is impossible to do in an hour, but... I hope you're getting a little bit of a drift of the depth and the contemporary value of the way he's interpreting words thousands of years ago, how they speak to us today, and how they spoke in a similar context. There were secularists who were do-gooders and wanted to build a beautiful world back then. And it couldn't work because there was no room for the other. You know what there was no room for the other, what that means? If there's no room for the great other, there's no room for the miniature other. They didn't make room for the other. It's all consistent. And if you make room for the other, it's a whole new ballgame. Then you're not in charge anymore. Then there's a higher force somehow keeping it together. I want to move on, my God, I'm so sorry, to, um, to page three. If anybody needs to leave early, I, I, I don't want to mess up your schedule, but I'm going to try to do this as fast as I can. 
So page three, I won't even make you read it, I'll just synopsize it to you. Uh, um, it's also a brilliantly powerful teaching. Sarah is told by God through the angels that she'll have a son at the age of 90. Now, any person with or without a sense of humor has to laugh, right? So she laughs too. And to get to the drift of it, the Ishbitzer is saying it was so difficult to bring down the first Jewish child into the world. It's a deeper metaphoric meaning to why she gave birth to him at 90. We're an ancient people and we're an eternal people. And Yitzchak is trying to bring in an energy into the world that is so connected to God because it's got to last through all eternity. This is Jewish continuity being planted right now. So Yitzchak is bringing down an energy of awe of God. The only way we can forever be connected to God is if we realize, wow, the wow moments of life. Because or else we're caught up in the simplicity of life and, have, and don't have time to take a deeper look. But if you have things that wow you, then maybe you can connect to God a little bit. So Yitzchak is trying to bring that energy into the world. And Sarah can't do it. She's not equipped for that. It's too high for her. So it's so powerful. She laughs. And when she laughs, it says, She laughed deep within her soul. And she like had the goosebumps. Wow, can I really do that? It was awe. It's a form of awe too. It's a form of fear. And for a second, she visioned it, and miraculously, she was revived. So the Ishbitzer says that if Yitzchak is bringing down that teaching, that even fear of God is not a matter of free choice. We believe everything is determined by God but fear of God. Because fear of God is your own personal trip. We're afraid for different reasons. But we have our own fears. You know, it's a, it's a very personal thing. So the Ishbitzer is saying that that fear of God suggests that God is in everything. Because what are we afraid of? All the terrible things we may do. So if God is in everything, he says God is in sin. And maybe God is the source of our sins. Because God is everything. He teases. Not fully developed. He says this is a very deep subject matter. And then there are other citations, you can read them later, that discuss an angle of what it means God is in sin. And to synopsize it, it is that we believe in repentance and teshuva. And when you fix, in Kabbalah, there's a concept, you descend so you can go up higher. It's again about building muscles, spiritual muscles. So the mistake has sanctity to it. The mistake is as holy as the good deed, and maybe even holier, because it will lead you to a higher level. I want to just show you how the Izbitzah sets something up and doesn't finish it. And that's why you have to ask, what's the holy Izbitzah saying? So he's told us that Yitzchak is bringing down awe. And Sarah laughed. So there's a very cute exchange, and I actually, I'll read it to you quickly. The words are, and I'll translate, Sarah, Sarah denied, Lamor saying, I did not laugh. I was afraid. And this is perhaps, according to some, the first and only time that God speaks to a woman. 
And it's so powerful what he says to her. Lo, no, ki but you did laugh. So I want to suggest on a deeper level, Sarah doesn't know what happened to her. She wasn't aware she was laughing. She knew, it's, this is, she's afraid, how am I going to bring this Isaac into the world? I'm ill-equipped to do that. And God is saying to her, through the joy, through the happiness, through the positiveness of life, we can access the awe of God. If you're singing and you're dancing and you're in a trance, you're connecting to the awe of God. The tool with which we will connect to the awe of God is Yitzchak. His name is laughter, is joy, is happiness. Because we can't, we're not on a level that we can connect to that transcendent awe. We're afraid of it. So I give you Yitzchak because of your laughter and tell you, be cool, be happy about it. With joy and with happiness, you can access that highest, like I said, that goosebumps. Imagine, God forbid, shouldn't happen to anybody, although the end should happen to everybody forever if they ever needed to. Chas somebody goes to a doctor and they get the worst possible results. And they come back the next day for the follow-up visit. And the doctor says, I made a mistake, it wasn't you. My God, what goosebumps, what awe you get, what joy you get. That's Yitzchak. That's a Jew. Is feel empowered, take that awe and empower it into your life. You're the one that's able to do it through joy. You're the chosen one. Not in a suggestion that others aren't. I'm going to move on because there's so many beautiful teachings to do. Now comes teaching four, which is page 79. I'll just really synopsize four and five very quickly. This is Judah. Judah connects to Tamar in a way that's not 100% kosher, so to speak, to the surface of the eye. And he gives birth to the lineage of King David. And Judah didn't quite, wasn't quite aware that Tamar got him in the hole, so to speak, forgive me, and um, he, uh, um, she's about to be hung because she's pregnant and she was supposed to, she was, she was the uh, mother of one of his children and she promised that she would not, uh, uh, and that she would not uh, marry anybody at that point, and it turns out she had relations with him. And what would any leader do under those circumstances? First thing is plan the cover-up. And the moment Tamar confronts Judah, Judah says, Tzadka mimeni, she's more righteous than I. I am wrong, she was right. Judah signifies King David, he signifies Mashiach. Judah makes mistakes every step of the way. Judah is imperfect. Judah is going to take responsibility for Benjamin when they have to go see Joseph. You know that story? And Judah is going to, my God, be challenged by that no end. Judah is the Mashiach energy that we eventually, excuse me, connect to. Joseph is the perfect tzaddik. He does no wrong. Joseph can be among his brothers and shine and even get jealousy through it, but he's still shining. He's brilliant. Joseph can be in the dungeon. He can be in prison and rise very quickly to become the top aide for the CEO of the greatest entrepreneur in Egypt, Potiphar. And he's shining there, shining a little bit too much for Potiphar's wife's sake, and overcomes that challenge, whereas Judah couldn't overcome that challenge with Tamar. He's Mr. Perfect. And he ends up in prison again, and he's shining there. He's brilliant. You can't put this kid down. And he ends up being the viceroy of Egypt, shining again and saving the world. 
and the Jewish people and humanity. And he's only the intro for Mashiach. And again, I'm oversimplifying a, a deep Ishbitza teaching. But to keep it very short and simple, Judah is telling us, before you come to the imperfection, you need to have a seed of Joseph. We need to have a vision of Joseph's ideal that we need, we need to try to do the best we can to, to be as good as we can, to be as, as positive and as strong as we can. But we're going to make mistakes. And in the next teaching on 5, Judah never gives up. He is standing, facing his brother, the viceroy of Egypt, and he's, all the odds are against him. This is the superpower of that time. He's got all the machinery of, of oppression at his hands. He can destroy them all, and Judah is pleading and begging and praying. And ultimately, Judah somehow reaches Joseph, and Judah thinks he's standing before the most oppressive, evil tyrant that you can ever face. And who does it turn out to be? His brother. And the Ishbitzah says that is a metaphor for all the difficulties and challenges we have in life with evil, terrible leaders, with disgusting, outrageously bad bosses. And there are evil tyrants. But you know who's standing behind them? God. Your brother God. And in the end of time, you will see, as Joseph saw, as Judah saw, that this was God's plan all along. And he says that's a metaphor for all of Jewish history, for all our challenges. Again, I'm just throwing out teasers, but, you know, we don't have time to develop them. I want to move on just to give you a sense of... And here we get to something that's so profoundly deep and so important. Two of Aaron's sons are present where, if you want to know where we are, we are on page 214. Yeah. Two of Aaron's sons, Nadav and Avihu, I'm going to make this very fast. Two of Aaron's sons, Nadav and Avihu, have seen the highest spiritual light that a human being could ever see. The incense and, and all the holy fires were being initiated in the temple. And just understand the depth of the incense. It's made of 11 spices. One of them, called chalbana, is the most disgusting, despicable, smelling spice you could imagine. Put those 10 together without the chalbana, you get an amazingly sweet taste. Put those 10 together with the chalbana, and my God, Galvin, and that taste is enhanced. That smell, that fragrance is divine beyond your imagination. We need the bad to contribute to the greatness of the good. So they're so excited. They say, wow, let's bring foreign fires into the temple. Let there be no fires that are destructive. Let's take any foreign spiritual fire that's burning. Let's bring it into the holy temple, and let's do an ultimate tikkun ha'olam, so to speak. There are a lot of holy fires out there, some unholy ones. This is a moment of, of creating the fire of God in the world. Let's just bring all those fires together. And the Ishbitzah says that on the words, Asher lo that God didn't command them to bring that fire, there is the note called Mercha Chafula, the way you uh, sing it, chant it, cantation, is with a lot of double softness, double sweetness. And he says, they were so soft, so kind-hearted, so loving, so idyllic in their vision, the world wasn't ready for it yet. But you know what? Their vision was so important to integrate into Judaism. God says of them, even though they're punished and, and, and they lose their lives as a result of it, God says of them, Bikrovai et Kadesh. 
through my close ones, meaning Nadav and Aviyu, I will be sanctified. The Radziner, the Ishbitz's grandson, says, the entire service we do in Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, is based on their holy service. So yes, this was a sin, so to speak, that had to happen. It was a pushing the good to a level the world wasn't ready yet. And it's a sin. You know, mitzvah means to connect, tzavta. If you shoot too low, it's a sin. If you shoot too high, it can also be a sin. But somehow that highness brought something in. And the Ishbitzer is brilliant in taking every sin that happens in the Torah and showing the deep psychological depth of sin. He's empowering everybody, sinner included. And he's showing that the sins are all for a higher vision, whether the people are aware of it or not. And, of course, we can't apply that to each and every one of our mistakes. Rabbi Shlomo Kralbach never used the word sin, he used the word mistakes. But um, we can't apply that. But some sense of it is important to understand the mistakes and the sins, that they're not just coming from the evil worst place, that there's some quest of beyondness that's gone awry, that's gone wrong. I'm going to move on very quickly. Two more teachings. The um, next one is the elders of the tribes of Joseph are responding to the challenge put forth by Tzalafchad's daughters. They said, our father died. We have no portion in the land. They came to Moses. Moses asks God what to do, and God says, give them a portion. Because women didn't inherit then. And then the elders are saying, wait a minute. If these women inherit land and then they marry somebody from a different tribe, since the inheritance will ultimately um, go by, through the man, we're going to lose our land. It's going to go up and it can, it can end up in another tribe if they marry somebody from a different tribe. So God hears the elders too, and God says there'll be a temporary decree on not allowing intermarriage outside of the tribe. This, my dear friends, the Ishbitzer notes brilliantly, is the last teaching in the Torah before Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the repetition. So this is the legacy. This is the final teaching. It's not a coincidence that it deals with women and the establishment and the elders. He's talking to our generation. And I think he's saying on a very deep level that the two sides not only need to hear each other, but God hears both sides. Look, the establishment has its concerns. They're losing power. They're losing control. And they've done a good job at maintaining the land. And the women, my God, they're being discriminated against. They're being denied a basic right. God hears both. And I think the Ishbitzer says it so beautifully. He says there is a Torah of the moment and there's a Torah that's eternal. And he's big on this, does this infinite times. And he says, the Torah ends with this Torah of the moment to teach us in the end of all times, I'm adding, that there'll be many Torahs of the moment that need to be heard. And there'll be many Torahs of the moment that cannot contradict the eternal Torah, but yet be heard. And they need to go into a divine dialogue between the traditional, holy, eternal Torah and the Torah of the moment. And again, our culture is so... Simplistic and so surface. Either we're into one or the other. And he's saying, in, in the wholeness of life, if we're really holistic, it all exists. And it's so powerful because he uses bread as the metaphor for the eternal Torah. Because bread is the greatest sustainer of life, right? It's the stable of, all, of most cultures, I should say. 
But bread is only good for a limited amount of time. So you see it right within the metaphor he uses. He teases out consciousness that are meant to awaken you, to, to alert you to think deeper. Hasn't worked it out perfectly, but it's saying we need to, if we're going to create that holy society that, that, that Abraham's Tower of Babel generation failed at, here are the differences, here are the distinctiveness. It's all gone back to, to that source teaching. Create a holy dialogue, not a political agenda-based dialogue. Moses, the great leader of the Jewish people, couldn't answer the women, didn't know what to say, and couldn't answer the elders. Both times you turn to God. So don't go to your leader. I love your rabbi, whoever he may be. Okay, go to yourself and become part of that inner divine. I want to end with, and again, I'm rushing these, but I thank you so much for bearing with me. I want to end with a, a brilliant universal teaching. He says that um, the story of the Afatoar, which is interpreted by everybody, if you're, it's almost a Freudian concept. Every man wants to kill every other man and rape, forgive me, every other woman, right? Um, so he's, you're in war right now and your, your whole adrenaline is flowing, you're excited, the male of you is out, and you see this beautiful woman. So he interprets it on a whole other level. He says the war is the war of spirituality. And in that war of spirituality, no, there is a yafat toar, there's beauty among all the nations of the world, among the people you're fighting, men, the countries that are your enemies. And they have something that you need, he says. And he calls it teshuka. Teshuka, I would translate, although it's not translated that way, as the power of the passing fad. That's the power of our culture, is what's in today, what's going to excite me and generate me and give me a full life right now. He says, we are hama'at mikol ha'amim, the smallest of all the nations. There's a reason why we've never tried to dominate the whole world. We can't for spiritual slash physical reasons. It's a holy mission. You can see it yourself. I'm not going to go into why we never able to dominate the world. The only way we'll ever dominate the world, we think, is through a messianic, loving, redemptive process, but never through physicality. So the Ishbitzer is saying, we are missing that yearning, that teshuka, that excitement in our tradition. It's dead many times in life. I had a privilege to take a whole group of people to see the old Bubba Varebi, and very traditional. The books of the Ishbitzer, you should know, were banned by most Hasidim. You wouldn't find them in, in, in most Hasidic courts till maybe 50 years ago. So I went, I'm talking to you now about another Rebbe who was, I wouldn't say he was part of the band, but he, Isbis was not his teaching. But he used the same idea. He said, movies are exciting. This is 30 years ago. There was no internet, right? We need movies in Judaism. Ayla, get to work, Rabbi. <laughs> we, we, need, we need to get the, 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 the Mount Sinai video consciousness going. We need to feel God. We need to see God. We need to feel the burning, living God in every aspect of our life. And they're much better at doing that than we are. And it's cool. Learn from them. But bring it in and enhance your tradition. So I'm sorry I went way over, but I just tried to tease out a few teachings. If anybody still has any energy to ask a question, feel free to. And if you don't, God bless you either way. Thank you so much for listening. I have a question. Please. Oh. So was there any, I think you alluded to this, but, you know, when we, when I hear the word Rebbe, I think of Schneerson, mm -hmm. Chabad, but mm -hmm. was there any relationship between this Rebbe and the predecessor of, of 
the Rebbe Schneerson, like very good. father, very good. grandfather, that kind of thing. I'll say not to my knowledge, but I would say that a lot of what the last Lubavitcher Rebbe did, as you can tell, as you're alluding to, was very much within that tradition. And generically, Hasidus has these concepts. The Torah has these concepts. He just highlighted them in such a brilliant contemporary way, and the Rebbe brought it into this generation. I would say Shlomo, if I can just um, do my own addition there, was the Rebbe's top disciple when the Rebbe became Rebbe. And I always learn it, if you want, and Shlomo left Chabad. And I always say, if you want to understand why Shlomo left Chabad, understand why the Ishbitzer left the Kutzker. Shlomo said to me once that, um, he said, I wanted the Rebbe to be a Rebbe of the whole world and not of 10,000 or 100,000 Hasidim. And it's that expansiveness, it's that taking that beautiful vision but broadening it to a redemptive level, so to speak. So this, it's, it's a very powerful example you just brought up, yes. They, they, they overlap, but not, not that I know of in, in interpersonal ways. You guys were terrific. I mean, I thank you so much. Thank you so much. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.